Hello and welcome back. You're listening to season two of Adam Was Mad, a podcast where we discuss all things childhood mental health. I'm your host, Michelle, and each week I speak with a guest who either experienced mental health struggles as a child themselves, is parenting a child who has a mental health diagnosis, or who's a professional in this field. A quick cautionary note, many of our episodes do talk about trauma of various kinds, so listener discretion is advised. Every story is important and valued, and every story reminds us we're not alone out there. You have a village of people who understand exactly what you're going through and who can help. If you're looking to connect more closely with that village, join us on Facebook in the group Your Village by following the link at the top of today's show notes. When you join, enter your email to receive our free monthly resource. Hopefully you'll learn something new, hear something interesting, or truly just be reminded that you're not alone. Without any further ado, let's get to today's episode. I have two beautiful children, two boys, eight-year-old and a six-year-old. I think in the early days, I let a lot of outside opinions have too much impact on my own parenting. If we had a bad reaction at a restaurant and somebody was, you know, gave us a dirty look or something, I would let that ruin the day. I would leave. And I had to kind of learn that, you know, even though Silas is different, he's allowed to exist exactly as he is in any space. And that's okay. And it's okay if people stare now. It's okay if people don't understand. I think it's so important to show my kids that, you know, it's not my way or the highway, right? I'm always willing to do better. I'm always willing to listen. I don't think my parenting is getting easier because I'm doing anything better. I'm just always looking to improve and always looking to learn. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I have with me Michelle Caruana to talk about her parenting journey. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you, Michelle. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. I love that you are also a 1L Michelle. That's super important in the Michelle community, whether you're a 1L Michelle or a 2L Michelle. So I find it very cool that you and I are both 1L Michelles. And also, my maiden name's Uh, My maiden last name starts with a C, so we also have the same initials, so that's very cool. And we're also married to Chris's. (laughs) That's true. We are both also married to Chris's, and we both also have boys. So tell me a little bit about that, about who you are as a person and as a parent. Sure. So I have two beautiful children, two boys, as you said. Um, I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. My six-year-old is autistic. He got diagnosed a couple years ago. And we've had a really fun time on this parenting journey. I actually left my corporate job shortly after my first son was born just because he was, I like to call him not compatible with daycare. I used to get (laughs) calls all the time that he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping. He was just not compatible with daycare in every sense. So I ended up leaving my corporate job and I opened an indoor playground So a lot of my parenting journey, as we were kind of speaking about privately, has been in the public eye because I brought my kids to work with me pretty much every day, at least for those first couple years. I got pregnant with my second son shortly after opening. So I feel like that has added 
a lot of pressure to my parenting journey and I've had to kind of relearn how to parent, you know, behind closed doors. And it's been interesting to see that shift, but we ended up selling our business right before the pandemic. And now I teach other people to live out their dream of owning indoor playgrounds. And like, like I said, a lot of that does have to do with parenting. Yeah. So tell me about that. Why an indoor playground? So it kind of came to me by accident. So I knew that I needed to leave my job. I just knew that I couldn't sustain what I was doing. I had quite a long commute. I was in a really toxic work environment and they just weren't very supportive of working mothers, to put it lightly. I worked in IT and it was mostly men and they were just not very understanding if I did need to leave to pick up my child or if I needed to pump or something like that. It was a very toxic environment. But I also knew about myself that I just wouldn't be able to be a stay-at-home mom and feel fulfilled. I think it's amazing that so many people are able to do that. It just doesn't fit my personality. And I kind of knew that going into it. So I started researching and I started, you know, really racking my brain about what business I could start or what side hustle I could do where I could involve my family. And at this time, we didn't know that we wanted to have a second one so close, Um, but it ended up really working out. So I actually, at the time, was traveling a bit with my husband for his job And I noticed that in a lot of other cities, they had these sorts of smaller play cafes that weren't really like, you know, the discovery zones of the nineties that you probably remember, right? They're very small. They're more, yeah, they're more Montessori focused a lot of times. And they're really geared towards younger children. Whereas the discovery zones are usually like around five years old and up. Our area I noticed really was lacking a space for babies and toddlers, And so I thought, you know, why not try my hand at this? I, you know, have a master's degree in economics. I had owned businesses before, never a brick and mortar business, but I felt really confident. And I was humbled very quickly as I talk about on my YouTube channel and in my podcast. And like I said, a huge chunk of that was I really underestimated how difficult it would be to manage a business, to greet customers, to have conversations and make bookings and sales while I'm also trying to potty train and while I'm extremely pregnant and nursing. So it was a humbling experience to say the least. (laughs) I can only imagine I barely survived maternity leave with my children while I was home trying to pump and trying to parent and potty train and discipline and trying to make lunches. I didn't even like when neighbors stopped by to bring me food because I didn't want to get dressed. I didn't want to cover up. I can't imagine having to do that at work. How did that go while you were trying to parent your children or your oldest child at first and also trying to be there as a business owner and representative of this new company in the community? Well, like I said, it was a huge struggle. And to be honest, I definitely wasn't my best self when I was trying to juggle too many different things at once. And I think a lot of people that go into the indoor playground industry, they are parents of young children and they assume, you know, oh, I'm going to bring my kiddos with me. And while we're here, they're going to play in the play area and it's going to be playtime. And they forget that, you know, once children get very used to an environment, they start kind of treating it like their home, like their Mm. comfort zone. So unlike a lot of the children that were coming to visit, 
And, you know, unlike my own children, when we visited other new unfamiliar spaces, I noticed that my children were acting out a lot more than the other kiddos in the space. And part of it was because I was splitting my attention, right? They felt like they were being a little bit neglected. They felt like they wanted to get my attention back as opposed to, you know, giving my attention to the customers. And that is, again, something that I grossly underestimated what a struggle it would be. And I also underestimated, you know, how difficult it is to retain good employees and, you know, manage those situations where somebody calls in. And I ended up being at the cafe, again, especially those first couple years, much more than I thought I would be. And for me, it just really came down to, you know, it was such a struggle at the end of every single day. Because when I succeeded in one area, I was failing in another area, or so it seemed. So for example, I used the example previously, but when I was talking about potty training my son at the Play Cafe, and I literally potty trained him pretty much start to finish at that business. We started with a little like toy potty behind the counter, you know, obviously away from any of the kitchen equipment and things like that. But I would have him just kind of sit there. And then, you know, we moved eventually to the bathroom. And I remember the day that it finally clicked for him and he finally realized, okay, you know, I have to use the bathroom. I had to literally, you know, run from behind the counter. I had to neglect everything else I was doing and kind of help him use the toilet. And at the end of that day, I was feeling so proud and I, you know, was so excited to share with my husband that it had finally clicked in his mind. But then at the end of the day, it would never fail. I would think about all of those customers that I wasn't serving when I was in that bathroom when I was taking the time to, you know, have that patience with him. And so again, it always felt like if I had a really great business day, that likely meant that I was neglecting my kids a little bit more that day than other days. And if I had a really great parenting day, I undoubtedly lost out on a bunch of sales and maybe the customers felt neglected. And I got a couple negative reviews that, you know, somebody wasn't behind the counter when they came in, or it took 20 minutes to get a latte while they were there, you know, So that was really difficult. It felt like I was always failing at something. Oh, gosh, I can only imagine. I mean, like I said, I didn't even like to answer the door when I was at home on maternity leave. I can't imagine trying to potty train a toddler while you're also trying to be in a service industry position and trying to help customers and trying to keep an eye on the play area, just being all things for everybody. Now, you also mentioned earlier that one of your sons is autistic. Now, how did that come up for you? How did you first start to realize that? When did you first start to notice that your parenting journey was different than the people around you? Yeah, so one of the good things about owning the indoor playground is that I got a lot of experience with children and I got to see how other children reacted in certain environments. I got to see them reach milestones. And I definitely noticed the first thing that kind of came up for us, and I know autism presents differently in all children, um, but Silas, he was reaching all of his physical milestones. So he was crawling at the appropriate time, walking at the appropriate time. He was honestly an extremely easy baby. He was a much better sleeper than my first, and he really didn't show any signs of autism for the first two years of his life, except he wasn't using any words. He was laughing mm. and he was making sounds, but he wasn't making his communication milestones. So it was one of those things where, you know, we would go to the pediatrician and I'd say, you know, he's not talking yet. 
because one of the questions that they always ask at that stage is how many words is he using? And I have to say, well, none, you know, sometimes he will say things that might sound like, you know, mama or dada, but um, it was kind of this thing where the pediatrician was constantly telling me, you know, it'll come, he'll start talking, just, you know, wait it out. Um, I don't want to do early intervention services yet. And honestly, one of the tough lessons that I've had to learn is that oftentimes the services and resources your children get are directly proportional to the amount you're willing to advocate and to the amount you're willing to push. So we actually ended up switching pediatricians because I just could not get an early intervention referral and it felt like it was way too hard. And so for us, it definitely started with a lack of communication and now he is six. So he does say a handful of words now. He is starting to put multiple words together. We absolutely love his school. But I honestly, I wish I could go back and almost have like a, a, a I'm trying to think of a magic ball or magic I, I wand, a time machine. Wand. But I wish I could just go back and I really wonder how long they would have made me wait had I not asked for a referral because it was almost to his third birthday and they wow. were still not concerned enough. So luckily, again, as soon as we made that switch, we got an instant referral. He was able to start early inter intervention services right away. He qualified for many different services. But again, I I just assumed going into the parenting journey that, you know, kind of all providers are created equal, right? You want to believe that they have the best intentions and they are doing their due diligence. And I'm not saying that our original doctor, you know, had malicious intentions or anything like that, but the level of care that we were getting was just not really acceptable. And I honestly took their word for it for way too long. I wish I could go back and tell myself that, you know, you do need to advocate. It is so important, but as a new parent, you know, I had two little babies. My older son is only 20 months older than my second. So I was overwhelmed. So when they told me I didn't need to take any further action, I, you know, basically said, you know, say less. So I wish I could go back and tell myself that, you know, not all service providers are created equal. And if it doesn't feel right and you have a gut instinct that they're putting something off for too long or they're not hearing your concerns or you're not feeling validated, find a new one. It's okay. I promise they're not going to be mad at you. They're not going to care. Um, you need to do what's best for you and your family. I think that's such great advice. And I think you said two really important things that you, your level of care is directly tied to your ability to advocate and your willingness to advocate. And also all providers are not created equal. I think those are both so important in terms of messages that young parents and first or second time parents in particular really need to hear because my own children were 18 months apart. So I completely understand that feeling of overwhelm and feeling like you should be able to, to trust the experts in your life. You should be able to trust your child's pediatrician and not to say to your point that they had any malicious intent but you are your child's best advocate. You know them best. And the other thing I think is really important is that early intervention isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. And I think a lot of parents, myself included, my middle child has something called childhood apraxia of speech. And so he also was in speech intervention at quite a young age. And I know I felt a deep sense of shame at the very beginning. I felt like I had somehow failed him by the fact that he needed that early intervention. And 
through this parenting journey, I've met a lot of people who feel that sense of shame, like early intervention is somehow admitting that they've failed their child. But as I've grown through this journey, I've realized it's exactly the opposite. When you get early intervention for your child, that is the absolute best thing you can possibly do for them long-term. You are advocating for them early. You are advocating for them when they do not have the words or the ability to advocate for themselves and you're getting them help. If somebody broke a bone, you would not say, let's just give it a week and see how it feels. You would take them to the doctor immediately and you would get that bone treated. And it's exactly the same thing when it's a mental health or some kind of neurological condition. The earlier you can get a child intervention, the better their long-term outcome is going to be. So I really commend you for advocating for him at that very early stage and for being willing to change providers when you weren't getting the level of care you knew your son deserved. Would you say that that's been your biggest struggle, getting him the accommodations, the level of care, the referrals that he needs, or do you feel like something else has been even more difficult along this journey? So actually, we're really lucky now. We found a great team of providers. We've never really had to be overly pushy um, when it comes to getting the services that he needs. We absolutely love his school. I might change my tune in a couple of years when he does have to switch schools, um, but we're very lucky. So his school offers parenting classes and training classes on how to deal with certain things that present in autistic children. And I, I can't say enough good things about it. But for us, honestly, the biggest struggle has been parenting our two children who have very different abilities mm. and making sure that our attention and our focus isn't disproportionate between our two children. And that's also something I think a lot of people don't really talk about. So that surprised me the most. And honestly, now that we do have an amazing team of providers and I've read all the books and I've done all the training classes... I actually feel much more empowered and much more prepared to parent my autistic child as compared to his brother and handling his specific set of needs. And again, making sure that we're not placing too much of an emphasis on Silas's care and making sure that, you know, our older son doesn't feel left out or invalidated or, you know, lacking attention or anything like that. And I wish there were more books and podcasts and things like that about how to parent, you know, the other child, the child without a disability. Oh gosh. I love that we're talking about this because I struggle with exactly the same thing. So with my, in my case, my oldest child is the child who takes a lot of that extra energy, that extra attention away from his siblings. And I, I struggle so much because one of, um, one of the difficulties with my oldest child's condition is that it's he's very, very easily triggered. A lot of things, very sort of normal things, quote unquote, normal for another child, you know, perhaps being told no or getting the wrong cup or stubbing his toe um, might trigger a massive hours long meltdown in my oldest. And so we have to divert a lot of our attention to trying to prevent triggers in his life. And a lot of times that means if we have two choices for dinner, for example, we might default to his choice more times than our other child's choice because we do want to try to avoid those triggers. And I have to be so deeply conscious, not only of how my own parenting needs to be equal in terms of each of their experiences, but also then what's the effect of the meltdown. So if I do incidentally trigger 
or accidentally trigger an episode in my oldest, how does that episode impact my younger children as compared to say, not getting their way, right? And so I struggle with that on an absolutely daily basis. How are some of the ways that you handle that? So for us, when we are feeling like, when I catch myself maybe putting, again, maybe defaulting to our autistic child's choices or you know, almost making too much, too many changes to our routines or schedules or something like that. How it presents in our family is number one, my older son will start acting out. So he will engage in a lot of attention seeking behavior, whether it's getting in trouble at school and we need to go talk to the principal, or maybe it's saying a word that he knows is not a word that we use in our home or, you know, even breaking something. So I've learned not just to identify the triggers in my autistic child um, and to prevent his meltdowns and things like that. I've also learned to identify, okay, what are the triggers for my older child and how does that present? Because again, sometimes I don't realize I'm doing it until the behavior is already happening. And then I have to immediately kind of pull back. So for us, what really works best is validating his feelings. So Mm -hmm. for example, if he says, you know, it's not fair that we can't do this. Um, Like for example, we just went to a hockey game the other day because another thing that's really challenging about parenting a child with a disability, especially something like autism that has specific environmental triggers. We went to a hockey game and almost immediately I had to leave with Silas. Um, And what I was actually just about to say is that another thing that's difficult about parenting a child with a disability is that um, sometimes you're kind of between a rock and a hard place, right? You want to stretch their boundaries a little, you want to push them a little, but you don't want to push too much and cause a severe reaction. Like for example, a lot of times, um, our autistic child will engage in self-harming behavior. So we really have to, you know, constantly toe that line every single day. And this was just one of those days that I decided to push his boundary a little. I knew that it would be a little overwhelming to him, but I thought, you know, Let's just try it out. And what happened is, again, I had to almost immediately leave with Silas. He wouldn't even go to his seat. The jumbotron was really, really loud. It was very crowded. And how we handled this, this specific time is we had a game plan. So I went into that situation with a plan B and I put most of the focus on making sure that none of the experience was taken away from my older child. So what I mean by that is he was able to stay at the game with his dad. He got all of his snacks and popcorn. It was his first ever hockey game. And I took Silas across the street to a children's museum. And I did all the research ahead of time. I made sure they were open. I made sure that it was walking distance so that, again, so that Ben didn't have to leave and have his experience ruined. Because as you mentioned, it's not just about how the tantrum or the meltdown affects the child with the disability or a different ability. Um, it's also about how it affects the siblings and the rest of the family. So a couple years ago, I would not have known to do that. And we would have simply left. Ben probably would have cried. It would have been an all around terrible day. And he would have felt like it wasn't fair. And you know what? It wouldn't have been fair if you know his experience was that impacted. And so when something like that does happen, when we can't make an adjustment and the plan does need to change and my older 
son doesn't get to do a preferred activity or something he was looking forward to. I think the most important thing that I've learned is to validate those feelings and say, you know what? You're absolutely right for being angry. This isn't fair. I know you were looking forward to that. And then kind of allowing it to be a two-way conversation, right? I never just say, you know, tough it up. You know that your brother is autistic. You know that, you know, our family's a little bit different than all the other families. Um, I try to involve him and I say, you know what? It's not fair. You're right. You have every right to be angry. What is our next step? You know, and I don't want to, you know, we don't engage in bribing or anything like that, but I do allow him to choose something to kind of make up for that experience. And by involving him in that conversation, I've definitely noticed a huge decrease in his attention-seeking behavior and, you know, him saying this isn't fair or, you know, why can't I have a different brother or something like that? So I think validating and listening is so important. And if we make a mistake as parents, I think it's also so important to admit that. And that's something that I think earlier generations of parents didn't do enough of. And so if I do make a mistake or if I handle a situation really poorly and I, you know, I'm going back and regretting it later, I'll be honest with Ben and I'll say, you know, I know that that was a really difficult situation at the restaurant. Um, you know, I yelled when I shouldn't have, or I left and took everyone to the car and we got takeout. And maybe that wasn't the right thing to do in the situation. I think by being honest and expressing that, you know, I'm learning every single day, I'm getting better I'm doing my best by kind of admitting that, you know, I make mistakes just as much as, you know, he makes mistakes and his brother makes mistakes. I think he really appreciates that. And now that he's eight, he's gotten a lot more receptive of having those conversations. And I think there's definitely a fine line, right? We do want to protect our children from some of our adult problems, right? We don't want to let them know if we're having money issues or something like that. But I think this is one situation where it is really important, you know, starting at a certain age to say, listen, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. This is what happened. I yelled, I should have done this. So next time this happens, I'm going to handle it differently. And this is my plan. By being really open and honest with that, it's really made him feel more involved and like he has more control over that situation because he can make suggestions too, right? He can say, you know, I know that you were frustrated because I got in trouble at school, but this is what I was feeling. I was feeling like I wasn't getting enough attention. And it feels like, you know, Silas gets to do all of these fun activities, right? Because when they're very little, they think that early intervention is so fun, right? right. They don't understand. Ben used to really struggle with that because somebody would literally come into our home with a big box full of toys. They'd sit down with Silas and play with him for an hour. And it was really difficult to help him understand why that's happening to Silas and why it's not happening to him. And again, I made a lot of mistakes in those early years. I just kind of said, you know, this is just how it is. And I missed that opportunity to explain and to have him choose something that made it feel more like a level playing field, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I love that you're modeling apology and you're modeling mistakes because as adults, we make them all the time, right? We make mistakes at work. We make mistakes communicating with our partners or our family or just 
you know, out on the road. Sometimes we cut somebody off accidentally and we didn't mean to. And the best way to handle that is always with a genuine apology. And you're right. I think previous parenting generations didn't always have that mentality of it's okay to admit that I made a mistake and say, I'm sorry. And, you know, that's something that I think a lot of our generation, sort of this millennial, older millennial, Gen X uh, generation, we struggle with that sometimes ourselves because it wasn't modeled for us. And so I think practicing that in the little moments is how you are then able to do that in the bigger moments. So like you said, you didn't always get to do that or didn't have the capability of doing that when the kids were younger. But over time, you've practiced that and you've worked on that. And now I imagine it comes easy to be able to just say, hey, listen, I made the wrong decision. I'm sorry about that. And I do that too. I mean, it's not, and I do that in the little moments. It doesn't have to be the big moments to start with, right? Like if I say, if my, you know, one of my kids is looking for their shoes and I say, I think it's in the bathroom and they go to the bathroom and they say, it's not there. It's in the kitchen. I can say, oh, I'm sorry. I I thought it was in the bathroom. That was my mistake. Um, I'm really glad you found it. And it's those little moments of apology and recognition and validation that build then into the ability to say, I'm sorry when you make a mistake in the bigger situations. And so I really applaud you for being able to recognize that in yourself when the children were little. I mean, they're still little, they're six and eight, you know, but you're now able to do that. And these are the ages they're going to remember. And you are doing that already. You're already apologizing. You're already saying, hey, I'm not perfect. And also, hey, life isn't always fair and that's okay. And we acknowledge that life isn't always fair and it's all right to feel upset that it's not fair. And it's all right to feel upset that you got the short end of the stick. And I'm not going to tell you that that's a feeling you shouldn't be having because you're absolutely right. You did get the short end of the stick in this situation and it's okay to be upset about it. Now let's together problem solve a way to help you feel better. And I love that you're involving Ben in those conversations and that you're having that, okay, now how can we level the playing field? Even though you don't use those words with him, you're teaching him that when there is something that feels unfair in life, he's controlling, he is in control of the outcome, right? He might not be able to go back in time and prevent the situation that felt unfair or unjust, but he can handle his own reaction to it. So I think you're giving him really amazing lifelong skills. And you're also teaching empathy at the same time, right? It might not be consciously teaching empathy, but by saying, hey, you know, sometimes we do have to make accommodations for other people in our lives who are of different abilities. You're teaching them to empathize with those other individuals, And by starting small with somebody in their own family, that's going to give them that foundation so that when they're older and 20 years from now, they encounter somebody in their work environment or in college or in their just general life, somebody living in their apartment complex, they're going to be able to empathize naturally. It's not going to be something they have to struggle to understand. So I I really think you're giving them this amazing foundation I think you're giving Ben in particular this amazing foundation of empathy and being a kind human being. So for one, I think you're doing an amazing job. (laughs) Um, Where are you guys today? You know, how does it feel life today? Is it feel, does it feel like more of a struggle every single day as the boys get older? Or do you feel like now that you have more tools in your toolbox and they're a little bit better able to understand, do you feel like things are getting easier? 
They're getting easier, but I think it's because I'm much more confident in my gut instincts and in my own parenting skills. I think in the early days, I let a lot of outside opinions have too much impact on my own parenting. Mm. So like, for example, if we had a bad reaction at a restaurant. So if Silas was being a little bit loud and somebody was, you know, gave us a dirty look or something, I would let that ruin the day. I would leave. And I had to kind of learn that, you know, even though Silas is different, he's allowed to exist exactly as he is in any space. And that's okay. And it's okay if people stare now. It's okay if people don't understand. I try to, again, understand that they don't have that same experience as I do. They might not understand. And I try to take it as a learning opportunity. And, you know, maybe I won't address them directly, but maybe I'll say, um, maybe I'll say loudly about how we're handling the situation or um, something like that. But I've had to just really let go of everyone else's expectations and everyone else's judgment. And again, just be okay with Silas existing exactly as he is. And that's allowed, right? And um, TikTok is really opening up this conversation about parenting when you have children with different abilities. And I think that's really beautiful, but I also think it's really highlighting, as you said, a lot of the parenting mishaps that the earlier generations had. And there's this new term that I'm becoming more and more familiar with, um, and that is a glass child. And it's a huge conversation on TikTok right now. And a lot of siblings who have siblings with uh, disability, especially autism, that seems to be what comes across my for you page the most, probably because I interact with a lot of that content, but a lot of them are coming out and they're sharing their struggles and feeling like they were neglected or feeling like they weren't heard or feeling like they weren't validated. And if anyone isn't familiar, I pulled up the definition because it's something that I didn't really understand. So glass children are siblings of a person with a disability. And the term came from, and it uses the word glass because people tend to see right through them, especially their own parents. And they only see the person with a disability. And some people also relate the term glass to appearing very strong because they kind of had to be, and they had to act as a parent role in a lot of situations. And Again, it is really referring to neglect due to their sibling's disability. And I think it's getting easier to parent now because I'm willing to admit that I don't know it at all. And even though I feel really confident in my parenting now, a lot of that confidence comes from always wanting to learn, right? I'm always looking for the next audiobook. I'm always looking for the next parenting podcast. I'm ready and willing to admit that maybe I haven't been doing things the right way. Maybe I can be just a little bit better today than I was yesterday. And I think just as important as modeling apology and modeling empathy, I think it's so important to show my kids that, you know, it's not my way or the highway, right? I'm always willing to do better. I'm always willing to listen. I'm always willing to learn. So again, I don't think my parenting is getting easier because I'm doing anything better. I'm just always looking to improve and always looking to learn. That's 
such an amazing sentiment and such an amazing motivation because every time you do learn something new, that's another tool for your toolkit. It's another uh, technique that you can employ in your parenting. And it's something that hopefully your children, as they grow older, will recognize in you that you never just defaulted to the easy way. You were always looking how to be the best parent to them that you could possibly be. And that's such a great sentiment to end on. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. And I hope to talk to you again really soon. Thank you so much, Michelle. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the show notes for free downloadable resources and a link to join Your Village, our Facebook community at facebook.com slash Your Village Community and the number two. That's Your Village Community 2. Catch you next time.